Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Sarah, Assistant Editor at Prospect, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Peter Apps, Deputy Editor at Inside Housing and author of Show Me the Bodies, How We Let Grenfell Happen, a harrowing account of the fire that killed 72 people in a high-rise social housing block in North Kensington in 2017. In his book, Apps charts the myriad failures of the government, the companies involved in supplying the cladding, and the London Fire Brigade to prevent the disaster. He writes, Grenfell tells us something about the priority our political and economic system places on human life, especially when those lives are likely to be poor, immigrant, and from ethnic minority backgrounds. Five and a half years on from the fire, and the public inquiry hearings have concluded after 400 days of testimony, but is justice any closer for the victims, survivors and their families? So, Peter, thank you so much for joining us today for writing this incredibly moving book. Can you begin by telling us the story of why you decided to write Show Me the Bodies? So, I think as you mentioned in my intro, I'm Deputy Editor at Inside Housing Magazine, which is a specialist title for people who work in the social housing sector. So really, as soon as Grenfell happened... We knew it was going to be quite a major story for for us and for our readers because, you know, it felt like there was little more important really than explaining to people who manage other tower blocks how and why this happened and how it could be prevented from happening again. So as a result of that, it's been a major part of my job really over the last five years reporting on it. But sort of beyond that, we'd actually been writing about this issue a bit before the fire, um, particularly sort of the, the fire safety of of high rise council housing in general, but specifically the issue of, of dangerous cladding being added to the outside. I think we'd, we'd written a story called, which we called a stark warning, actually, which only published about five or six weeks before the Grenfell Tower fire because we'd been investigating a similar fire, another tower block in Shepherd's Bush. And so I've had this real feeling almost from the moment that Grenfell happened that this was probably something that could have been prevented just because we knew that those warnings were out there and about. Um, and the more that I've done either investigating it myself or reporting on what's coming out of the inquiry the more I felt that and you kind of feel like that's something more people need to know really I suppose that that this didn't have to happen that it was allowed to happen as the the title of the book says um and I just I thought one that was a message I want to get across and two 
because the inquiry's kind of been such a long and sometimes complicated process and because it's played out in a period when we've had so much in the news in terms of COVID and Ukraine and all the kind of political turmoil that we've seen over the last couple of years, I just think for a lot of people it slipped them by, really. They're not they're not aware of, of this enormous and really incredible but awful story about why this fire happened and the forces that led to it. And I just, the, the more I wrote about it, the more I felt like someone has to put this together in one form so that you can, rather than just looking up a million disparate things on the internet, you can sit down and read it and understand it. And I mean, in the end, just by virtue of kind of staying with the story for five years, I found myself in a place where I was able to do that. I think the way you open the book is particularly powerful. You start by describing a fire that, as the reader, I assumed was Grenfell, but it's actually the 2009 Larkin Hall House fire. Can you tell us more about the Larkin Hall House fire and why it illustrates your claim that the Grenfell disaster was 40 years in the making? That was actually an idea I had after reading a book about Hillsborough, where, not right at the start, but near the start, the, the author does a very similar thing of kind of describing a football stadium crush, which you as the reader think is a kind of summary of Hillsborough, and then it turns out actually that it's not. And that I remember being so struck by that when I was reading that book and how powerfully it got home the point that, you know, this wasn't just a, a sort of one-off out of the blue event. It was something that there was a big build-up to. And the house has, has so many bells with Grenfell Tower. It, it The fire was spread in part by combustible materials on the outside wall. There were these kind of really serious internal defects that meant that smoke and fire went really rapidly through the inside of the building. And those are things that were either introduced during a refurbishment or should have been picked up in in sort of routine maintenance of the building if it was being done properly. And then also on the day of the fire, the London Fire Brigade found themselves without a plan really about how to deal with a tower block fire getting so out of control. And we saw a lot of the same mistakes made there as were then later made at Grenfell, most notably telling residents to stay put when, had they been told to flee, they would probably have lived. And all of those things could have been fixed. I think we, we had all of the knowledge we needed after Lacknell House in order to put things in place to make sure there wasn't a repeat of it. And I was that's why we were investing, that's why we were writing about it. I said in the previous question, we were writing about tower block fire safety, and that's why, because the Lacknell inquest were in 2013, and we were interested in whether those questions had been answered. And I, I kept being told by people, look, if Lacknell House had happened at night, when that building was full, you've got to remember a lot of people during the Lacknell fire were out of work or out of school or out seeing friends. It was the middle of the week, weekday, hot summer's days, not that many people at home. And you still had six deaths. And so if, if you just take that fire and put it in the middle of the night, then many, many more people would die. And that's what people, fire safety experts, were saying to us. And we just didn't feel that there was anything really changing, there was any any real urgency to, to make sure that the conditions that were present at Lacknell were, were not present somewhere else. And there were some very particular things like the coroner, Lacknell House coroner had bridged the use of sprinklers in high-rise, older high-rise buildings. And we did a survey, I think, in 2015 at Inside Housing and found out that only I think only 2% of social housing high-rises at that point had sprinklers retrofitted, into the flats at least. And so we were we were looking at it thinking, why aren't people changing, you know? And 
in the end it comes down to even then you could kind of tell that that was about political choices about decisions around austerity and decisions around what they they were referring to as, as red tape which meant they didn't want to make these new impositions they wanted to carry on with kind of business as usual but obviously the very serious consequence of that was that what people were warning about came to pass and there, there was a repeat of the Lackanal House fire. It was actually much worse, especially in terms of the external fire spread. And it happened at night when there was 293 people inside the building. So, you know, I, we, we as a country had this, it couldn't be clearer, this, this Grenfell didn't come out of the blue, but it was actively warned of with a, with a fire that, it, you know, six deaths should have been enough, really for for those problems to be given political priority and they just weren't and i think the title of the book kind of cuts to that with the the phrase show me the bodies can you tell us why that's the title of your book yeah yeah it's potentially quite a sort of well it's, it's an attention grabbing title i suppose but the, the the reason is there was a civil servant who was in charge of the guidance and the rules covering the cladding on the outside of buildings uh and a witness said to the inquiry that they warned him that there was going to be a serious fire if what we've just talked about didn't happen, if the, the lessons of Lacknall weren't followed. And the witness alleges that the civil servant replied with the words, show me the bodies. And what he meant by that was that he, he couldn't justify to his seniors the need to impose new regulations on industry because that's kind of how they looked at safety rules in the absence of a large number of fire deaths. They would point to the fact that deaths in fire were falling and had been falling year on year from, I think, 1980 onwards to say that, well, our building regulations must be okay If things are so bad, then why aren't there more people dying? Or in, in more colloquial terms, show me the bodies. And that's what he was getting at. And I think the thing is what that ignored is that the reason fire deaths might fall is nothing to do with the way you're building new buildings. Most people don't live in new buildings. Most people live in buildings that have been around for decades. And fire deaths fall because people change their lifestyles. They smoke less. Fewer people cook with chip fans now. Uh, chip pans, sorry. Fewer people have open fires to warm their house. And few, fewer people, uh, more people have smoke alarms. And we're a bit better at making sure the batteries in our smoke alarm die. We replace them quickly. And all of that stuff has an impact on the number of people dying in fires. But that data was used almost as an excuse to avoid doing something the government didn't want to do, which was... The, the necessary regulation on industry and I think because of the way it's, it's sort of quite a callous phrase and it has that real sort of it's, it's quite sort of ominous in in the light of what happened I think it for me stood out when I was kind of interviewing people and researching the book as a description of the British state's attitude to and the industry's wider industry's attitude this level of complacency this sort of like we don't have to do it so we're not going to bother to do it that that attitude kind of runs through a lot of what's in the book and a lot of what's been in the inquiry and so it felt to me like you want to pull one thing out that sort of tells the story and that quote seemed to and your book examines different groups that played a role in the lead-up to the tragedy. You kind of talk about the profiteering of the construction companies who supplied the cladding. You talk about a government with a really ideological commitment to deregulation. And you also do talk about the London Fire Brigade and the fatal errors 
that they made. Can you tell us a bit more about the evidence that's come out in the inquiry about each of these? Okay, I mean, so I think you started off with the 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 companies that made cladding materials. So you've got three companies really who've really been in the spotlight. There, you've got Arconic, which is it's a large American company actually, but the the inquiry's focused in on its French arm, which is the the group that actually sold the cladding. And I could talk for hours about what's come out about them, but I think that the sort of fundamental thing that we've learned is that they had testing from as early as two thousand and four which showed that when you bent one of their cladding panels into a particular shape, its fire performance massively deteriorated. So I think that it was they were testing it to kind of European standards, and if it was flat, they could just about scrape a B grade. It's alphabetical sort of grading. But as soon as they bent it into this shape, it went right down to an E, so completely unclassifiable, and even an F, which is just like below the standards that just the bottom one that doesn't even have this hasn't even been classified type standard and what Arconic did was rather than look at that testing which was repeated again and again over the years build leading up to Grenfell and say well this clearly isn't a safe product for the outside of buildings and the outside of people's homes they left it on the market and they they were able to sort of gain a, a commercial advantage in um in England, because this particularly combustible panel was slightly cheaper than a, a fire retardant alternative. And so when contractors were looking to save money, they had the edge, basically. And, and our regulations, which kind of then leads us on to the sort of regulatory environment, were out of date. We had a, a standard for cladding, and I won't get too technical, but we had a standard for cladding called Class Nought, which just didn't really... I mean, it's, it wasn't really a good enough standard to discover the true fire performance of a product. It could be misled by, for example, you, you get a lump of wood, but you pack it with fire retardants, or you get a, a bit of plastic like you've got here, but cover it with a metal surface, and you can get through that test. And there were repeated warnings to our government from 1991 onwards, really, sort of this kind of almost drumbeat of warnings that this standard is too low, and it needs to be upgraded, otherwise we're going to have a problem. And I think most shockingly was the revelation that in 2001, the UK government actually ran a series of cladding tests as part of its sort of regulatory reform work and ran one on ACM cladding, which is what was later used on Grenfell Tower. And that test failed so dramatically that it had to be stopped after nine minutes because it was going to set the laboratory they were working in on fire and was just this huge, devastating blaze which and then the government again was warned that that stuff is being permitted by your class naught standard which isn't very tight you might want to think about changing it and upgrading it and just didn't and you there was the in the background there was lobbying from sort of large corporations who obviously preferred the lower standards because it meant that they could sell other products that otherwise wouldn't be on the market and ultimately the government chose that i mean it was a, it's a very kind of small part of the government machine but it, it knew that there were products with a real serious building safety risk and it knew that it could get them out of the market by tightening regulations and it chose not to and that's fundamentally what the choice of the British state was in the, the sort of and both Labour and Conservative governments as well I should add. With regard to the London Fire Brigade who you mentioned as well yes they are part of this story I think but there's a lot of there's a lot of sometimes justifiable anger at sort of criticising the fire brigade because I think people think of the bravery and the heroism of individual firefighters going into Grenfell Tower when it's sort of a blaze and doing what they can in very difficult circumstances. 
But that's not really the major criticism of the London Fire Brigade, even though there were a few things that went wrong on the night. It's the they didn't have a plan. They didn't prepare for an event like this. I mean, they've said at the inquiry, and they're probably right to say that Grenfell was unusual. It was a particularly bad tower block fire of which we've, we haven't really seen the like before and hopefully we'll never see again. But it certainly wasn't difficult to foresee that a fire might get out of control in a high-rise building and the stay-put policy on which they rely w- wouldn't stand anymore because that's exactly what happened at Lacknell House. And and yet, despite that, the London Fire Brigade didn't prepare training for its front line, its incident commanders, its call handlers, its, its sort of you know rank-and-file fire, firefighting operation to give them any sort of clue as to what to do in those circumstances. You even had internal London Fire Brigade PowerPoint presentations about the risk of huge tower block fires being prepared by their kind of fire safety team for to be presented at conferences. And yet they never then went that step further and asked themselves the question, well, what do we do if that happens here? What do we do if it happens in London? And that's a real serious failure, to be honest, because yes, people struggle with the idea that London Fire Brigade are, are to be criticised in this story because of the, the bravery and all of that sort of thing. But... That they let down their own front line, from in my view, in, in not having a plan because it's the front line, it's the, the front line incident commanders that had to were expected to kind of improvise something on the spot and also now carry the kind of trauma and the, the, the physical in, injury from smoke inhalation and whatever else that, that followed the failure to plan and prepare. So, and I think that the London Fire Brigade is a huge institution. I think it's a funny thing, we sort of understand if you talk about, say, the Metropolitan Police that there is a difference between a police officer and the Metropolitan Police as an institution. But people kind of struggle with that a little bit more with the London Fire Brigade, but it's the same. You know, there's there's the institution, the organisation, the, the kind of slightly archaic way it's set up. And then there is the, the guys who 99 times out of 100 go out and do their best in, in really tough circumstances. So, yeah, that's a sort of a broad rundown of those three areas. I think one thing that I found quite moving, a small detail in your book, was the role that Sir David Amos played in trying to warn government about these risks. Would you tell us a tiny bit about that? Yeah, sure. And I actually found out again, like, while writing this story, I was I was looking up that Sir David, because obviously he passed away in really tragic circumstances last year. But I, I was trying to get an interview with him. And when I was looking into his background, it turned out we both actually went to the same school, which is a weird little coincidence. In, it's a little comprehensive school in East London, which we were both at. And obviously... <laughs> several decades apart but he's a conservative mp member of parliament for south end for many years and he he became chair of the all-party parliamentary group for fire safety which is sort of you know all-party parliamentary groups are kind of small odd little things that are often used by lobbying organizations to, to further their aims but this one was was set up with the strong support of a guy called sam webb who also very sadly passed away recently it was really about, it was a specific campaigning thing they had. They wanted the Lacknell inquest to be taken more seriously and, and implemented by the department before another disaster happened. And so they kept sending letters. They sort of sent letter after letter to, you know, Eric Pickles first and then a, a series of Liberal Democrat and Conservative ministers finally culminating in Gavin Barwell, who's become quite a well-known political figure as he went on to be Chief of Staff for Theresa May imploring them really I mean in, in really quite strong terms to just take these these inquest recommendations more seriously and, and warning them that a tower block fire could happen as a result and I think 
you know, David, during this period, there was a there was a fatal tower block fire in his constituency, and he, he took up the the cause there as well. And I th- I think it's good. I mean, I think he he's like you say, he's it's a surprising sort of slightly inspiring figure from it because I think it just shows that there are some people who I don't know that much about David's political career otherwise other than that, but it shows that you know he's not he's not gone into politics and just kind of pursued sort of kept his head down and shut up and, and tried to get a ministerial post. And he's actually gone in and thought, well, this is an important issue. I, I, I could I could make some difference by, by promoting it and raising it. It's not being taken seriously by the government, of which I am a member of the party, but I'm not going to let that stop me in, you know, pushing them to do the right thing. And I think what made your book so powerful to keep using that word as a reader was the combination of this forensic investigation of of who holds the blame um for this tragedy but also your account sort of hour by hour of the fire and the people who lost their lives in the fire and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the stories of some of those I think the ones that stood out to me in your book was you wrote about the final hours of Gloria Trevison and her partner Marco, you write about Rania Ibrahim and her two daughters, and the final victim of the fire, Pilly Burton. Can you tell us a little bit about who those people were and what they experienced? Yeah, I mean, first of all, just as a kind of general point, I think, you know, obviously that stuff was difficult to write and um, you want to get it right and you don't want to trespass too much into people's grief or feel like you're kind of exploiting what happened to them to... to make a narrative and so I think that was all of that stuff was really tough to to write and to get the balance right and that sort of thing and I ended up I sort of approached because a lot of that information is now in the public domain because people have submitted witness statements and they've they've spoken at commemoration hearings and stuff but I made sure I was speaking to the families or at least to their lawyers to, to make sure they knew how I was planning to use it and that they were okay with that and so that's kind of how I ended up picking the the people who I have focused in on but yeah I think you mentioned that the, the, the architects Gloria and Marco they lived on the top floor of the tower they were private renters not social renters because uh, someone had bought that flat under the right to buy and then rented it out and they were so tenants of him uh, and they just they hadn't come to the UK that, they haven't been in the UK that long they kind of I think they met at um, uh, Venice School of Architecture and um they they didn't find too much by way of kind of work opportunity in Italy, so they came over to 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 London and and they really kind of just just started to make a real success. Gloria had just found a job at an architecture firm which did the restoration of historic buildings, and Marco had also just made his first kind of first appointments in the world of architecture, and they were kind of young couple who were living quite a sort of trendy lifestyle and you know enjoying life really and and living in this tower block where they had these incredible views out across central London and they were really like you know it's I think anyone who can kind of think back to the time in their life in their sort of early 20s where you're kind of you're living out of home for the first time with with your partner and you're getting your first job and you're kind of making your first way in the world that's a really exciting time in your life and yeah they were trapped in in they lived on the top floor so you pick up Gloria and Marco's story through the calls that they they had with their parents they phoned back to Italy and when they opened their front doors they found that the uh the the corridor was the landing was was blocked with with this really horrible toxic smoke and they didn't think that they could get through it. They didn't think that they'd be safe to get through it. And they were given the advice, I think, third hand by speaking to someone else and then finding out 
that the fire brigade's advice was to stay put and that they'd be rescued. And so they did, and they stayed, and they stayed on the phone for quite a long time to to their parents in Italy. So, um, you know, there's these really, really, really awful phone transcripts in which their parents realise that they're not going to make it out, ultimately, and then have to say goodbye to them. Um, and the, 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 the evidence of the inquiry expert is that Gloria and Marco could have, could have left their flat at anything up to 2.45am, because they were young, they were able-bodied, they were healthy, it wouldn't have taken them very long to get down the stairs and lived, but they just were never, they were never given that advice, they were always told someone will come and rescue you. And because of that smoke on the landing, they didn't they didn't know that it wasn't like that all the way down the building. So they didn't they didn't risk it. And, um, you know, quite reasonably so. And then I think Rania, who you mentioned, Rania Ibrahim, was on, on the same floor with her two children, Fetia and Hania. And yeah, I mean, I think that the most heartbreaking stuff in the, the, the whole inquiry is the children, really. I mean, 18 children died in a fire. And, you know, some of them very young, Rania's children were very young and, and there were others, there was a two-year-old boy on a lower floor. And I think you just, I think one of the, the inquiry lawyers said it, and it was just one of the quotes from the inquiry, Shri, stay with me, of just, you know, think about what those children heard and saw and smelt in their final hours and how they would have cried and wanted comfort from their parents and all of that kind of stuff it really is and for a long time as well I mean people were trapped for hours in in the tower and you know it's it's really like it's sort of beyond comprehension really how much that how much pain was caused as a result of that and to their surviving relatives how how difficult it is to have to live with the knowledge that that happened to them. And yeah, I mean, it's really painful. But Pilly Burton, she's married to a guy called Nick Burton. They lived in Grenfell Tower for about 30 years. And yeah, she was a, she's a very fashionable woman, Pilly. I think she worked in, 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 a, in a nearby hospital. She was very kind of a big socialite. She cooked a lot of, she was from a place called Gallica in Spain and cooked a lot of food from that region. And Nick was in the, the wine trade. So he always had a good bottle of wine in and, they were a real kind of like part of the social group of the tower, which is something that is often underappreciated about Grenfell. It was a real, like a real social group where like there were a lot of really strong friendships between neighbours, which is just something that is so rare in London these days, you know, where we kind of all live as strangers in our little boxes. And Grenfell was, for a lot of the people in the tower, the complete opposite of that. And that's something personified in Nick and Pilly, who, you know, were, were, were at the centre of that community in a lot of ways. And they did get out of the tower. They were helped out by firefighters who got up to where they lived on the 19th floor. Pilly was in quite a frail state um, by the time of the fire anyway. And she never left hospital. She, she, she passed away in January the following year. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think like, yeah, I mean, she, she, so she never got her life back really. She never, it never, it's very difficult for someone who's got dementia. How do you explain that I think is how Nick put it is how do you explain that their flat's gone, their parents' ashes are gone, their dog's gone, all of their everything that they're so familiar with, they're going having to move to a different place, it's a hospital, it's it's all unfamiliar and like that's you know, if anyone's ever had any relatives or friends, relatives with dementia, I can imagine how difficult that would be for someone with that condition. So yeah, there's just a few of the stories and I think like I said, it's it was kind of a red line for me really in the Either I would get permission from people to tell those stories so that people could understand that this was a human thing 
not just a kind of thing about building regulations in politics or I wouldn't write the book basically because I think that you can't tell the story without making that clear you have to you have to explain to people that people suffered and that it mattered and all that sort of stuff I'm very appreciative of the 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 families that said to me it was they would let me use that stuff and I hope that the way I've presented it in the book and what I've written up <laughs> I imagine most a lot of them won't read it because it's sort of very very difficult memories to bring back but I hope that what I've written in it and the fact that it's getting out to a wider audience about what happened and why does justice to those memories and kind of repays the faith they've put in me so so yes and I think hearing that and hearing those stories it kind of makes a comment that Richard Millett who is counsel of the inquiry made at the end more poignant in that he said that each and every one of the deaths that occurred in Grenfell Tower on the 14th of June 2017 was avoidable. What would real accountability look like in this situation if that's the case and do you expect to see accountability in the report that comes from the inquiry? Yeah so I think the inquiry has already established a few things that are really important. It's established that the Grenfell Tower as a whole was in breach of building regulations at the time of the fire and it's now established that each and every death that occurred on the night was avoidable. So in the book, I describe the fire as a crime. And I think that that is, that is now beyond doubt. I mean, who is responsible for that crime is, is still f- for the, the, the investigation and the police and the Crown Prosecution Service and the inquiry to sort of make their legal judgments about. But we can say that what happened there was against the law because of what the inquiry's already established and that it had those consequences I think not only that, I mean, I think if you look at the number of people killed, I think the the Grenfell Tower inquiry, I think as I might say in the book, but I've certainly said somewhere else, it it took more life than than all of the terrorist attacks on London this century combined. And so it's, I would call it the most serious crime that the Metropolitan Police have ever investigated. There does need to be, I think, for for the community, I think there needs to be not just justice being done, but seeing to be done. I think if all that happens, the fines and sanctions against corporate bodies where they'll probably be picked up by insurers it's not really going to feel good enough I think they need to see humans prosecuted and sent to prison really and I think everyone talks quite a lot about how difficult it is to make out manslaughter convictions in cases like this because there's so many different failures and there's so many different parties that have some responsibility that it's quite hard to isolate one and say, well, you caused this. And that's kind of what we saw in those closing statements is everyone is able, at least kind of legally speaking, to dance around that by pointing to somebody else instead. I do think, though, that that, that there is probably, there's so much evidence that's come out in the inquiry that it, that there's some, it feels like some prosecutions should be fairly straightforward. It's difficult for me to kind of say who without getting you guys sued for libel but you know I'm sure people can read the evidence and work that out I also think that you don't just have to prosecute people for manslaughter if that proves too difficult for whatever reason you can prosecute people for fraud you can prosecute people for misconduct in a public office you can prosecute people for various offences under the health and safety act all of which come with potential serious sanction I think fraud corporate fraud mis-selling and misdescribing products which then go onto the market and people buy is a serious offense for which there's existing case cases to draw on so i'd like to see that we know the police investigation is progressing there's been 40 people interviewed under caution i think the police are looking to get their 
documents over to the Crown Prosecution Service next month, I think. Um, you know, that's as I understood it, an earlier part in the investigation at least. They're going to wait until after the inquiry report comes out, which won't be for, for some time. I think certainly in the first half of 2023, that's unlikely. But I think after the report comes out, you should be able to hope that the police will be able to move quite fast with at least some arrests and some prosecutions. I think the question isn't, is anybody going to be prosecuted? But will enough people be prosecuted and will the right people be prosecuted? And for that, we're just going to have to kind of wait and see what the Metropolitan Police and the Crown Prosecution Service are able to deliver. But certainly the community erode it and demand it. And I think if 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 that is unsatisfactory, then there is going to have there is going to be a reckoning because the the community have suffered a lot and I don't think they will just accept that outcome. Thank you so much to Pete for joining us today and thank you all very much for tuning in to hear our discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of our new issue of Prospect Magazine or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe. In the current issue, you'll find writing from Sheila Hancock, Julian Glover, Ferdinand Mount and many more. Goodbye and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast next week. Mm-hmm.